Hey, hey, welcome to the Grace Course Podcast. I'm Phil Drysdale, and I'm really excited to be finishing off this week the Is God Really Good series. Um, So the last couple of um, episodes of the podcast, uh, if you haven't listened to them already, I'd really recommend going back, rewinding a couple episodes and working through this series. Otherwise, this is going to be a bit of a, a... a struggle for you to wrap your head around what I'm talking about. Um, but the last couple episodes, we talked about a lot of the uncomfortable truths in the Bible, a lot of the stuff that we tend to ignore as Christians, stuff that's really messy and, you know, it just paints God as um, something that doesn't look too like Jesus at times. Um, and so we looked at what do we do uh, when that's there? Do we ignore it? Do we gloss over it? Or do we have to engage with those texts? Do we have to be honest with the fact that they're there in our Bible, in our holy text? Um, And then we looked at how the Jews kind of dealt with that, how the Jews read the Bible um, was the topic of uh, episode two. And today we're going to look at how Jesus read the Bible. Um, Now, this is a really, really key thing. You know, we all have something called a hermeneutic, which is the lens through which we read the scriptures is how we choose to interpret a scripture. And, And ultimately, for me, I believe that we should have a hermeneutic that matches Jesus's, how Jesus i.e. God chose to read the Bible, chose to interpret scripture, chose to explain scripture, should have a fundamental impact on how we choose to read the Bible, how we choose to interpret scripture. Um, And so that's what we're going to look at today. I really hope that you enjoy today's episode. I want to just talk as as brief as I can. You've heard me speak. I'm not brief ever. Um, But I want to talk as briefly as I can. Um, Just kind of... we're talking about you know, how the Jews approach scripture differently. They would have discussions, they would engage with text. Um, and, and we're talking about scripture as a meta-narrative, there's an ongoing journey and people are changing, culture's changing. And as a result of that, we start to see God differently and God can reach us differently as well. You know, God can have a different conversation with people that are sacrificing their kids to a culture that's starting to be a bit more civilized and recognize that killing kids isn't as helpful. Um, you know, and, and you know, starting to understand the way the world works as well. We actually start to understand, oh, we understand how rain works. We don't need to worship a rain god and sacrifice our kids to him. You know, so there's, there's progression and things are happening and, and, and God's able to engage us in different ways. Um, in the midst of this, Jesus shows up. And so the big question that people start to ask is, the, the problem we have here is you're, you're saying we've got all these pieces of the puzzle and we're trying to piece it together. Uh, how do we know what's right? How do we know what's wrong? How do you pick up stuff in the Old Testament and read through it and go, yeah, but that's not what God's really like, right? Because that's kind of what I'm presenting to you is there's elements where you can go, that's not, that's people's opinion of God, but it's not necessarily what God looks like. Um, there is maybe some slight muddiness in the way that we're seeing God here. We're not seeing clearly there's a bit of... Uh, disruption here. And, and for me, the answer is we, we use Jesus. We use that puzzle uh, box that clearly shows us how it all fits together. Um, the, the problem, of course, is that that's not always easy either. Um, and I think the, the exciting part is Jesus shows us how he reads scripture. Now, again, uh, because the Bible is the basic instructions before leaving earth. You heard that before? B-I-B-L-E. Bible basic instructions before leaving earth. Anyone heard that? No? I got that in my good Baptist upbringing and then my brethren upbringing and all the other upbringings I've had. Um, I'm still getting up, bro. Um, But the funny thing is the Bible is anything but basic, okay? Nobody that spent more than 12 minutes reading the Bible thinks it's basic, okay? And the instructions are not clear. They're all over the place. Um, 
And yeah, I'm not sure even we're going to leave Earth. I think there's a new Earth, and I'm sure someone has to stay on it. So even that, like, I'm like, ah, I just don't know if I agree with any of the statements on that. Um, don't hold me to that last statement. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> it's far from basic. It's far from clear. Um, and so we open up and we read some of what Jesus does, and it's not clear. Sometimes you're like, what the heck is going on? So we're going to talk a little bit about how Jesus uses the scripture with this lens of the stuff deeper going on and with the lens that he's not always going to agree with what different people said. Because at times throughout the Testament, you've got two or three or four or five different opinions about God. Jesus is going to pick one at times because he knows what's right. And he's showing us what is clear. He's revealing to us this invisible God. And so it's actually quite exciting when we look at it as a, wow, Jesus is actually informing us. He's, he's giving us clarity to what's going on, this confusing text. It's not that we open up Leviticus and read that and go, that is exactly what God's like. And then we open up Jeremiah and go, that's exactly what God's like. And then we open up that and go, that is exactly what's God. And then we open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and we go, that is exactly what's God. How do we piece it all together? That's not how you do it at all. You open up all these books and you go, wow, that speaks of God and how he journeyed with man and how he revealed himself to man. And you open up the next book and you go, oh yeah, that's still that. And then you open up Job and go, yeah, that's, that's part of that. And you keep going. And then you open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you go, and this is the clarification document that comments on what's going on here. This is how we now go back and reread it through to go, oh, that's God. That's kind of God, but they misinterpreted it. And that's just not God. They've really missed the ball here. Um, and this is what Jesus comes to do. He comes to reveal to us who he is. So, and, and he does this in many different ways, but we'll find that, that, that Jesus' ministry, a good book to use is Luke because it's quite chronological in, in that sense because he's a really detailed, orientated person, this doctor. I like Luke. Um, have you guys seen that video? I like Luke. No? Um, <laughs> Someone in this room? No, someone watching the video will go, ha, ha, ha. I think it's like a Tommy Tenney like, uh, comedy sketch or something, and he talks about the Bible. Um, I have no idea what I was talking about. Luke, Luke talks about Jesus, right? And we've got the nice little narrative. They get the birth and the shepherds by night, and the, like, there's cows and animals and different things, most of which is totally superstitious, and we've read into the Bible, and it's not even there. But, you know, we've got the tradition moving on, and then he, he goes and does some cool miracles. It's quite extravagant. And then he goes off to be tempted in the wilderness, and then he comes back. And at this point, Jesus starts talking about the Bible in his own hometown. Um, and this is the first time he kind of really clearly throws out some scripture. And it's quite exciting. It's really exciting. I'm going to um, actually pull up the Bible because I think we should read it because it's just a bit clearer. And also my memory is not that good. Um, if my uh, iPad can function. It. Oh, what do you know? It's still actually there. Uh, okay. So Jesus shows up. He's in Nazareth, this kind of home area. Um, Nazareth is... Um, it's, it's not in the center of uh, the Israel culture, Jerusalem, all that kind of stuff. They're not as entrenched uh, in the Roman uh, occupation. They probably don't have much Romans there. It's not far from some other Roman cities that were established in the area. Um, and so many of them would have to go to Roman cities to work and to, and to be... Um, yeah, they would be very exposed to some of it, but they probably didn't experience a lot of the hardships that people in Jerusalem were experiencing from Rome and all these different things. And so they got their political bias secondhand. So they would get traveling Pharisees coming in and telling them of the burdens of the Romans and they're horrible and they're awful. And there's a lot of like political drama going on and a lot of like people bickering and, and you know, it's the secondhand 
politics that we all know and love, right? It's the things you read on Facebook. Every person that voted Brexit is old and evil, and they hate black people and, and Jews and Hispanics, and every person that voted this way is this, and every person, right? I mean, this kind of mentality, right? And so the, the, the Pharisees are coming in from Jerusalem and going, the Romans are evil, they're dark, they're terrible, they're, they're bad, they, 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 they are ruining our culture and our cities, and they're destroying everything that's holy and good, and they're not mentioning, and we can now drink clean water and we've got some roads to walk on. And right, so I mean, it's, it's all one-sided. Now, I'm not saying that the Romans were great. They were pretty awful people in some ways, you know, and they, they were occupying this place. But on some level, they actually thought they were bettering the world. And on some level, they actually did better the world. Um, thank God for the Romans in many ways, you know? Um, just not when they're like burning Christians alive to light up their garden and things like that. Um, <laughs> So this is all going on, and there's a, a mass hatred of, of Rome. If you are in Jerusalem, if you are in the surrounding area in Israel, you despise Rome because yet again, you are occupied. You are not the nation of Israel. You don't get your own identity. You don't get to be God's favorite people. And how do you know you're God's favorite people? Because you're, you're winning. That's how the narrative is all throughout the Old Testament. God was with them and they won. God was not with them, and they lost. In fact, there's a really funny scripture. Again, me and Svenja were going through scriptures yesterday. Amazing scripture in Judges, and it goes, and God was with them, and they had va- and victory, but not over there, because they had iron chariots. Uh, if you ever stopped to evaluate that text, what does that say? God was with us, which is why we won, but he can't beat people with iron chariots, right? I mean, it's like, so this is, it gives the idea of the voice within the Bible, right? What's the voice in the Bible is, is when I win, God's with me. Let's not talk about the iron chariots though, right? It's, it's kind of this awkward thing because what are they saying? God's smaller than iron chariots? I don't think so. Hopefully you don't piece that together from the Bible's commentary on God, okay? But the, it kind of does say that. Um, and so, you know, but their, their whole mentality is when, when God is on our side, when we're good, when we're godly, we win. We're a great nation. We're gonna be the nation, right? That, that is the story of the Old Testament. We are the nation of God. We're the bee's knees. We're what God picks. He's, he's our favorite. And everyone else is awful and terrible, and they're going to get what comes to them. And that includes the Egyptians got what came to them, right? Um, at least in the scriptures. So Egypt seemed to do just fine historically. There's no evidence of any calamity or Jews being there. Um, in fact, Svenja says that um, she was telling me in the car yesterday, she studied a lot as a teenager about uh, Egypt and everything. And uh, it's fascinating. There's no evidence whatsoever that Jews lived there ever as slaves. Just none. Um, and certainly not in the numbers mentioned of a million people. The whole of Egypt was about 1.5 million people at the time. So it's quite fascinating. Now, what you do with that, I don't know, right? There you go. I'm just throwing out a few things to panic you just to get you ready for the Q&A. Um, but God gave the Egyptians what they deserve. And God gave the Canaanites what they deserve. And we were good. And so we got, we, we got victory. And then... Why are we captured by the Babylonians? Because we were bad, right? And God left us, and so that's why we're suffering. And so most of the culture of the day, why are Romans in charge? Because we screwed up, we did something wrong. And so that's a lot of the commentary. We screwed up, we did something wrong, God has departed, and if we just please him, if we just do the right thing, that's where the Pharisees came from. They were hardcore uh, laymen. They weren't priests, they weren't the, 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 the people in charge, but they were hardcore. If we just clean up Israel, if we just do the right thing, God will cast out all the Romans and Israel will be the greatest nation in the world again, and that's what it's going to be. And this was people's commentary on the Messiah. And um, All this to say, okay, all this to say, they hated the Romans. 
with a passion. And the Romans didn't like them either um, because most places just kind of accepted fate. Israel did not, and eventually they got wiped out because of it um, in 70 AD. But Jesus shows up one day and he decides to read from the Torah or the, the scriptures. And so he gets to the synagogue like we talked, they would sit down and they would have these discussions. And so Jesus shows up, he got to the front, he pulls out Isaiah, uns unravels the scroll, and he starts reading Isaiah 61, right? And we love this passage, don't we? Now, we don't love it nearly as much as a good Jew would love it, okay? Because this was a, a, a liturgy text. We talked about liturgy, right? So this is the liturgy text that would talk about the year of Jubilee, which was the year that everyone would be set free, there'd be freedom from slavery, from bondage, prisoners would be set free, and God would finally judge all the enemies that have been against Israel, and they would experience eradication. Okay, and that was the narrative. That's what Jubilee was. Now, what's funny is they never celebrated Jubilee ever since God gave the law to do it, not once. Now, the reason for that is because you were to um, cancel all debts. And funnily enough, the people that had the money were in charge because that's how it works typically. And if you had, uh, say, maybe a need to go to get some money. And so let's say Svenja is in charge, you know, rich money, German, um, right? And you go, Svenja, I need a 10 year loan uh, of $100,000, okay? Um, and you would go, okay, yeah, 10 years, 100,000 years, okay. Mm, now, Jubilee's in three years. No, right? Because are you gonna give someone $100,000 when you're gonna have to cancel the debt in three years? No, I'll give you a three-year loan, right? Or a two-year, but I'm not giving you a 10 They never, ever celebrated Jubilee, not once. It was never celebrated. And many people actually, that was the commentary. That was why they got and ended up in Babylon is because they didn't celebrate Jubilee. What's funny is they come out of Babylon, they still didn't celebrate Jubilee. You think they'd learn the lesson. So Jesus shows up, he pulls out Isaiah, and this is exciting because he's now going to read their Jubilee text, which is really exciting. It's not even Jubilee, but we know of. Could have been. And what does he say? He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And they're thinking, we're poor? The Romans are exploiting us. We're poor? Yeah, awesome. This is great, good news to us. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. We're captive, we're a captive state, captive by Roman. Yes, yes, liberty, amazing. He's uh, to recover the sight of the blind and there's people that are ill, you know, whatever is going on, sickness, and, um, and they're going, yeah, yeah, I want my Uncle Bob to be healed. I want to be, you know, out of this wheelchair or whatever, I don't know if there's wheelchairs then. Um, to be set, uh, what was it, sorry. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, and they're like, we are oppressed, right? Yes, let's do this, finally, yes, that's what I'm all about. And to proclaim the year of God's favor. And they're like, yes, yes. And then he scrolls, the, he rolls the scroll back up, he puts it in the basket at the front, he walks back over, and he sits down. And then he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled. What has he just said? He's made a radical statement because he's not talking about today being Jubilee in one sense. What's he saying? He's saying, God is gonna set us free from oppression. God is gonna liberate captives. God is gonna heal the sick. And he's gonna do it, including the Romans. He's taking away their favorite bit, the end bit. The last passage is, and he's gonna destroy every person that stood in our way. Every single person that made us captives or oppressed, he's gonna destroy every single one of them. 
And that was their favorite verse. That was the Jews' favorite verse. That's what it was all hinged on. Finally, we're going to get to kick some Roman butt. And he just, he doesn't read that. Sits down and then says, it's fulfilled. He's not saying, I've, I've done it. That as of today, all those things have happened. Which I think is a lot of time what we're interpreting that to be. He's saying, the scripture stops there. What's he saying? Today, that scripture is fulfilled. He's saying, I don't agree with the next line. What's interesting is, uh, let's, let's do another Bible activity. I don't know if there's a few Bibles still dotted around. Um, it says he wrote up the scripture. Um, he says, today it's been fulfilled. Um, what's verse 22 say? Luke 4, 22. Who's got um, some scriptures for that? If you shout out what translation you've got as well, because then we won't get the same translations. New King James? Um, let's do you last, because that's a great translation. <laughs> Which I don't always say. Um, have you got one, yeah, Tom? NIV. So NIV. Yeah. So NIV. Also, well of them and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Perfect. Is this Joseph's son? Yes. All spoke well of him and were amazed by his gracious words. Okay. Who's got another one? Svenja, you got one? What translation is it? Do you know? The message. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> All who were there watching and listening were surprised at how well he spoke, but they also said, Isn't this Joseph's son the one we've known since he was a youngster? All were surprised by how well he spoke. Um, yeah? New Living. New Living, yeah. They were amazed at his gracious words and they spoke well of him. All right, let's jump into the New King James. What does this say? So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So it's a lot more neutral. It's all bore witness. Now, what's interesting is, and we talked about this earlier, how your translators make choices. Okay, so in the Greek, um, you can look at this, and it literally says, everyone bore witness. Everyone's experienced what he said. This is completely neutral. It's not good or bad. And they were amazed at how gracious he was being. Now, we can see why they're amazed at how gracious he's being, because what? He just took away all enemy hatred from that verse and actually said they're qualifying for liberty, for uh, getting healed, for being set free. So they're shocked by his gracious words. Now, based on that, I don't know, because most of our scriptures will lean to all spoke well of him or all marveled at how great he was. And actually, given it's neutral, I think that's a big jump, especially because what happens? So they, they marvel at him. And what does he do? He goes, doubtless, you're going to quote this and quote that. And you're going to say this. He goes off on them. He gets angry. So if they all go, oh, wow, what a great message. That was wonderful. Oh, Joseph's son. Amazing stuff. Why would he go nuts? Why? They didn't speak well of him. They were amazed. They were shocked by what he said because it was so gracious. And so what does he say? He goes off and he says, doubtless you will quote. So he's going to quote some more scriptures. Doubtless you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. And he goes on this and he says, look, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And we talk about this because we want, like to be like, Oh, well, I can't do healings in my own church or whatever. Nonsense, right? What's he saying here? No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He says, in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel. 
There was loads of Israel, uh, uh, widows all throughout Israel. And where did God send Elijah? To a Gentile. He found a Gentile widow. He found your enemy, and he sent them to that widow. And he says, oh, and there was loads and loads of lepers everywhere when Elisha was around. But which leper did God send Elisha to? He sent them to a Gentile. What happens next? When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up, drove him out of town, brought him to the edge of a cliff on which their town was built so they could throw him off the cliff. Jesus doesn't read scripture the way you do. He doesn't. If you grew up an evangelical Christian, Jesus does not read scripture the way you do. Because he gets rid of wrath, and then he justifies it by using scriptures that you probably wouldn't use that way either. He literally goes, I'm taking away any wrath of God attacking our enemy, of God giving our enemy what they deserve. I'm taking that away, and I'm giving them what we, we think we deserve, right? Because the Israels deserved it so much, right? None of us deserved it. But he's saying, what you're going to get, that thing you keep waiting, all this liberation, this freedom, this great stuff, I'm giving it to your enemies. You get it as well, but I'm giving it to your enemies. And what happens? When he took wrath away, what were they filled with? Wrath. Go figure. Because you look like the God you worship. But Jesus does not worship that God. So I'm trying to highlight to you, Jesus, when he uses scripture, uses it in very, very um, polemic ways, in, 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 in really uh, controversial ways, even for a culture that used their scripture quite broadly and, and would quote it out of context and would, would use it in different ways. He used it to speak the exact opposite of what they believed about God. And he does it oftentimes, right? He, he uses it in that way. But what's interesting is he stops quoting scripture from then on. He quotes it a couple of times here and there. Why? Because when, when he talks about the scriptures, they want to kill him. And he goes into parables. He starts speaking in parables, doesn't he? And when they say, why do you speak in parables? He says, because I don't want them to understand what I'm going to say. Go figure that one out as well, right? Isn't that a funny response? Because we think Jesus is here to make things clearer. And then we go, when Jesus is asked, like, why do you speak in parables? I don't want anyone to have any idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, cool. Like, maybe I should just go home, right? I mean, it's just a kind of funny thing, right? The, the next time he quotes scripture, last week of his life. And it's probably why it was the last week of his life as well. Because he did something so radical, it's just unheard of. Now we use this uh, passage as one of the only passages to support Jesus being wrathful and God being wrathful as revealed in Jesus. Are you coping now? You're, you're getting blinded, are you? Is there a way to... Do you want the blind pulled down or are you okay? You're basking in the sun. <laughs> We use this passage all the time to support, well, God can get angry. God is wrathful. Watch him in the temple when Jesus shows up in the temple. You guys remember this, right? Now, there's a lot of ways to view this, but I think it's pretty easy to look at it just at face value. What does Jesus do and what is he quoting? Um, so when Jesus goes into the temple, what happens? He gets mad, right? He starts flipping tables. He's pushing out every animal, every animal that's there to be sold, to be sacrificed. He's getting rid of all the money. He's pushing out all these market tellers and goes, get out of here, get out of here. And what does he say? He says, you've made this house a den of robbers, a house of thieves. Now, stop. That's where we leave it and we go, yeah, God gets angry because we're buying sacrifices and we're trading and we're profiting off of people. False. None of that is true. Well, no. 
Bible's not black and white. You can read what you want if you really need to. Let me put it another way. What is he quoting? He's quoting Jeremiah 7. Do you remember what Jeremiah 7 was? The really controversial one we talked about earlier. When you came out of Egypt, God did not command you to do sacrifices or offerings. He's quoting that same passage that Jeremiah was kicked out of Israel for. What is Jesus saying? I agree with Jeremiah's thoughts on offering and sacrifice. God has never wanted it. That is one of the most radical things you will ever find in the Gospels, and we miss it entirely because we're not allowing the Bible to critique itself. People within the Bible to have a conversation. But Jeremiah critiques Deuteronomy, and later on Jesus quotes him saying, when Jeremiah said that God doesn't want offering and sacrifices, I agree, and I'm actually showing you physically as well. I'm trying to make it as clear as possible. I'm not going up a hill and going, so when Jeremiah said this, this is what I'm thinking. No, I'm going into your temple in Jerusalem, clearing it out, saying, Jeremiah was right. Get the hell out of here. God doesn't want your sheep or your cows or your grain. Get out of here. He's mad because they've reduced God to a God of sacrifice, of wrath, of violence, a God that can be bought by burning a sheep. This is, I really encourage you to look into this stuff. Because when you start digging deeper, it makes a whole lot more sense. When Jesus was asked um, how, there's there's a few times in the the New Testament um, where we hear about the greatest commandment, don't we? Um, It's really interesting how they come up in different stories. But one of the stories, um, he's he's talking about scripture and how he... uh, uh, he sees scripture. They start challenging him on a different scriptures and he responds with different scriptures. He's using scripture completely out of context to respond. It's funny, right? Because if we did that, can you imagine you go up to your leader and they're like, well, what do you do about this verse? And we just picked a random verse and go, well, what about this? And you'd be like, they can't just pick a random verse. It's usually what the leader's doing anyway. Um, right? But this is what Jesus is doing. And so they stop and they go, leader, what do you think is the greatest commandment? They're saying, How do you read the Torah? How do you read all this law? Because when they're saying the greatest commandment, they don't mean like a small set of like the 10 commandments. They're saying, how do you read the law? How do you read the Torah? How do you read our scriptures? How are you reading this? How are you coming to this conclusion? That's the context of them asking that question. It's him quoting Bibles verses out of context and subverting the way they see Bible verses. What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Do you know what's interesting? He misquotes it. It's not what it says. That's not in the Bible before Jesus shows up. It doesn't say that. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. The mind isn't there. So actually, if you stop and think about that, that's quite a profound statement he's making. He's saying, this is how I read the Bible, and this is how I see the scriptures. I see love God with everything you've got, and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's all about love. He's saying, I'm making it about love, but what's he saying? In making it all about love, use that. Use your head. Use your mind. Engage your brain. So it's quite an aggressive kind of like theater that Jesus takes part in. But he's saying, listen, I want you to think and think. Is this loving God? Is this loving others? Is it loving yourself? And love your neighbor. And they go, who's my neighbor? And he says, Isis. He picks the people group they hate the most. That when he says uh, the Samaritan, when he says, oh, the Samaritans, the Samaritans believed they worshiped the same gods, but they had a better, truer revelation. Um, that's when, remember the Samaritan women, like, where will we worship God? You know, is it this place or that place? They had this view. Do you know what the equivalent is today? 
it would be a Muslim who says, oh, we worship the same God. We all come from Abraham and blah, 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 but this is the truth and you're, la- you're like a lesser revelation. And if anything, it would also be quite an extremist because the Samaritans were known as violent, as all sorts of different, quite negative things. So really it is the Al-Qaeda, the ISIS, the whatever. So Jesus, when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, is telling the story of the, the friendly guy from ISIS, the good, good ISIS man. Osama bin Laden's best friend who helped the guy on the road after the pastor walked by, the monk walked by, and Mother Teresa walked by. It's a really crazy story when you stop and think of it in these kind of contexts. What's Jesus doing? He's trying to redefine how they're seeing God. And what do they do? They go to their God that they worship, this God of wrath, this God who loves sacrifice, and what do they do? They sacrifice his son. (laughs) They go and kill his son in wrath. We often talk about Jesus being a sacrifice to God, to please God. And I think if we actually study the narrative of scripture, the meta-narrative of scripture, we're seeing that we're still playing the same game. God needs sacrifice. He just needed a really good one, a perfect one. I don't know if that's there. What I see is God going, these guys need sacrifice. They're killing their kids right now. Let's bring animals. Let's, let's do animals for now. Let's move them away from killing kids. Let's kill animals. Let's keep moving them along the journey. And as time progresses, yeah, they get further and further and further. Before long, he goes, okay, I think they're ready. I'm going to reveal myself to them. I know what's going to happen. They're going to kill me. <laughs> they're going to sacrifice me. That's the best they could ever offer. Tell you what, if you were ever going to offer something to God, a perfect, blameless human who actually turns out to be God, that's pretty great. The story of the cross is sometimes not as much how we offered or God had some sort of sacrifice that was pleasing to him it was that we had the perfect sacrifice and it didn't work it came back and said nope that wasn't okay we're doing love we're doing forgiveness we're doing acceptance we're not doing kill someone you disagree with the cross screamed where the world was at we want violence we want vengeance we want blood Think of the blood of Jesus that speaks a better thing than Abel, yeah? Do you ever think about that passage? you ever think of Cain and Abel? Messed up story, right? I mean, pretty crazy. Well, it's, it's a founding myth, right? And I don't mean myth as in it didn't happen. That's not what myth means. Myth means it's, it's told in a story, dramatic form. Um, every, every culture has a founding myth, and almost all of them start with twins or two brothers who fight and one dies. So uh, the Roman culture had Romulus and Remus, right? And they fought and they, they killed one. And the Greek culture has a, a founding myth. And the Norse culture has, I mean, a lot of these cultures have these two brothers that fight. And the one that wins is always right, right? Because they probably wrote it down, right? Um, so the one that wins is, is right. And God is always on their side. And the one that dies isn't. And, and it's just this recurring theme throughout history. And so the Bible has the same narrative, which... Many people believe happened, many people don't believe happened. It's kind of not relevant. This is what amazes me when people talk about is Genesis literal? I'm like, it's not really relevant. The question is, what does Genesis mean? What's God communicating? So if you, don't, if you believe in evolution and you don't believe in an Adam and Eve, well, as long as you're getting the point of the story, that's okay, right? Because the point of the story isn't that it was two people on the planet. That's not the point, right? And so the same with Cain and Abel. So don't lose me if you don't believe that there was actually two people called Cain and Abel, that's okay. And if you really believe this too, that's okay as well. Like, I'm, I have no dog in this fight at all. My fight is, 
Isn't this interesting that the same story is happening that's happening all over the world, except who does God side with? The loser. The blood of Abel cries out for vengeance, and God says, you're right, your brother was wrong. That was unjust. It's never unjust in the other myths. It's always just. It's always justified. The difference in the Bible narrative is he's going, hey, this guy you killed, he didn't do anything. You're, you're the one at fault. What's interesting is God doesn't honor Abel, Abel's request. He goes to Cain and he says, you're wrong, your brother's right, but he doesn't honor his request. What's his request? I'm innocent, I want you to kill my brother. I want the same to happen. And God goes, nope. What makes Jesus amazing is he's an innocent victim that doesn't want revenge. He doesn't operate on the same paradigm as we do. Because when we get hurt, we want revenge. It's, it's kind of natural, it's human nature in some way. Um, Jesus shows us a different way. He says, love your enemies. You're not getting revenge. You don't get wrath. You don't get anger. You don't get blood. You get forgiveness. You get acceptance. These are the things that you're going to get. Jesus totally is redefining who we see God to be. Now, is he taking away the God of the Old Testament? No, he's still God. He's still there. And, but he's redefining. He's saying, maybe we should look at that and say, were you seeing this right? Were you seeing the same person? Were you seeing me? When, when John starts his, uh, his uh, gospel, it says that no one has seen the Father except Jesus. Have you ever thought about that verse? Like, is John just a liar? Like, loads of people saw the Father throughout the Old Testament. Loads. Samson's parents saw him. Adam and Eve walked with him. Enoch walked with him. Isaiah saw him come. Uh, Moses saw him. Uh, Moses saw his back, his glory. No, no, there's also two other passages which say he saw God face to face, which again, like, welcome to a world of inconsistencies, right? Because no one can see me and die, but then Moses did twice. And not only that, Moses didn't do it on his own. He saw him with um, his sister, his brother, and 72 elders. They all saw God and met him face to face. And it's like, Oh, okay, well, I guess they're okay. Maybe, maybe we can see him face to face and not die. Um, but there's lots of people that saw God. So when John opens up his, his, his gospel and says, no one has ever seen God except Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying, these people saw God in some sense, but not the way Jesus does, not the way Jesus reveals us. There's something different going on. There's something deeper here. There's something better here than what we have pieced together. And the truth is we piece together the divine. Our divine experiences are wonderful. How many of you ever talked to someone? And uh, I'll say you've talked to someone and not you've been this person, right? I've been this person. How many of you ever talked to someone and they go, oh, God said I should do this. And you're looking at them going, no. I don't think he did. Right? Anyone had that experience? Right? How many of you have then seen them go and do that thing? And you go, mm-hmm right? And how many of you have been shocked because it actually was God? Probably, yeah. Right? So that happens as well, so I'm not taking away from that. But how many of you go, mm-hmm, yeah. And how many of them come back and go, you know, now on second thought, when God said this, I think I maybe misinterpreted it. Anyone had that? That takes a humble person to do, right? I'd like to think that I do that. I'm not sure how often I do. Um, there's a whole world of difference between God said, and I think God said. And we all apply our biases and all sorts of different stuff. This is why, you know, I work with a lot of young adults and teenagers, and I have for a decade now plus. I just go, you know what? Don't ask God what he says about who you're supposed to marry. Just don't. 
Because you know what? Your hormones are so through the roof about this guy that you're like fantasizing about, you know, renaming yourself after. You know what I mean? Like, there's so much hormones at stake here. You're gonna go, God, what do you say? He is definitely saying go after he's the man for you, right? Same deal with the other guy. We're all like, oh my gosh, she's pretty, I don't care. I'm not even listening to her. She's so pretty. God, what do you think? Yeah, she's pretty, isn't she? Uh, right? I mean, we're just so jacked up on hormones that you can't hear God, right? He might be going, run, run, man, run, Phil. And we're like, ah. Yes, run towards her, run into her heart. You know, it's like, you, we, we, we will hear what we want to hear. I, I say this often as well, I was, I was sharing with Svenja because we were talking about um, having friends. We were just, we had some great chat in the car, four hour drive, um, and we didn't kill each other or anything, it was great. Um, we've got four hours to go tomorrow though. Um, <laughs> I've run out of things to say. Um, we were talking in the car about people and, and how they ask us for advice and when they don't take it, well, you know, how to take that because it can be quite hurtful, can it? Someone goes, oh, what do you think about this? And you give them great advice because our advice is always great, right? And they don't do it and you're like, oh, come on, right? You came to me for advice. They didn't come to you for advice. Rarely does someone come to you for advice. Usually what people come to is for validation. This is why I have this friend and I joke about it. Um, but he comes to me all the time. And I've told him about a year and a half ago, I says, I don't want you to come to me for advice anymore. Just not interested because you're not interested in my advice. But he would come to me and he would say, oh, Phil, I really don't know. I, I want to get the new iPhone, but uh, things are a bit tight right now. And you know, we don't have much money. And I'd be like, well, you know, I think you've got a few kids. You've got a wife. You know, maybe you should just focus on that right now. And you know, you've got that last iPhone six months ago. So maybe you know, just wait till your upgrade's up or something. Um, and he would go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. And he would go away. And he would talk to 20 other people, right? But eventually, the 21st person would go, you know, God's got this. He's your provider. Go get the iPhone. 10 seconds later, he's ordered it online, right? <laughs> What's he looking for? Is he looking for advice? He's looking for someone to tell him he can buy the iPhone he wants. And I think so much of the time, our interactions with God are this. Our interactions are, are they're muddied with our own view, our own desire, our own thought, our own wish, right? How many of you want people that have done horrific things to get what they deserve, right? I, hands up. I want that pedophile to be punished on some level. And I'm really honest about that. But do you know what else I'm honest about? That's not godly on any level. What's godly is that that pedophile is loved and accepted and forgiven and given grace upon grace upon grace until he can become the person or she can become the person that God made them to be. That's justice. For them to be loved out of all the brokenness and hurt and pain and shame and whatever else caused them to do that painful thing. So the worst person in the world, I'm quick to go, yeah, my first thought is, you know, you see in the paper, you open up the paper and it's like, pedophile given 30 years in jail and you think, good. And then my second thought is going, crap, I'm still me. I'm still wanting my justice, not God's. I'm still wanting punishment. I'm still wanting wrath. I'm still wanting whatever. Because we can't get away with crucifying people anymore right now. You know, give it a few years, we might swing. Um, but you know, apart from maybe in like some extreme states, like America, where you can kill people, um, you're not allowed to punish people that way, unfortunately. So we, we still want a bit of punishment in a different way, right? Maybe I can't kill that person, but I sure wish they get what they deserve. And it's just part of our nature in some ways. And I say that in a, just, you're perfect, you're holy, you're righteous, you know that, and you've been set free from that. Hear me right in that. But it's part of our socially constructed world view that really gets stuck on us at times, okay? So hear me right in that. I'm not saying you yourself, who you perfectly were made to be is some vindictive uh, person or whatever, but I think it's, it's natural for us to jump to that. 
It's natural for us to want that. And, and so I'm not trying to shame or you know, anything like that, but I'm just saying Jesus comes to highlight that that's in us. He comes to highlight, hey, God's not wrathful. And when everyone gets wrathful, he's kind of going, can you see connection, right? Okay, so that concludes our Is God Really Good series. My, my prayer for you is that this has been a helpful um, process, that it's helped you uh, maybe rekindle a passion to look at a lot of these texts that maybe you haven't looked at over the years. I know for me, I hid from these texts. I, I just avoided the text that made God look like a monster. He was so different to the Jesus whom I loved and the father that Jesus reveals. Um, and so it's been amazing to me to understand how Jesus came to that conclusion, how he read the scriptures, how he could teach about a good father when there was so much in the Bible and in the text that didn't seem to reveal a very good father. Understanding that has given me a real passion to go back through the scriptures, to read through the lens that Jesus gave us. Um, and my prayer is that it's done that for you too, that um, it's opened you up to engage with this more. It's opened you up to see it differently. And especially if maybe perhaps you did see God a bit more schizophrenic, maybe you did see God, well, yeah, he's a good father, but also he's really angry. He's wrathful. He's dangerous. He's something to be feared. My prayer is that maybe this has opened you up to seeing things slightly differently. Um, if you have questions, I know many of you will. I know I still do. Um, I'd encourage you to head over to thegracecourse.com. That's where I post all of these videos of all the teachings. Um, but under the videos, we often have great conversations in the comments. I encourage you to go check out the Is God Really Good series on Facebook, uh, sorry, on uh, thegracecourse.com and leave some comments. Ask me some questions. I'd love to talk with you about this. Um, alternately, you can always send me a message on Instagram. I love to chat via DM. So that's always um, fun. I'm just at Phil Drysdale. I'm easy to find. Um, shoot me a DM. Um, and I'll leave it there. If, if you uh, are enjoying these podcasts, if you get a lot out of this ministry, I'd love for um, you to consider supporting what I'm doing as well. Um, you can head over to thegracecourse.com and become a partner. And for as little as $5 a month, you can help me run this and keep giving all my resources away for free. Um, as a thank you, I'll add you to um, a small partners group that we have on Facebook where we discuss different things and um, we have a once a month video chat where we chat about all sorts of different stuff. Um, there's not much I can offer uh, my partners because everything is free. But um, hey, if, you, if, you, if you've been blessed, it would be great um, to have you on board anyway. With all that said, I'll leave you for now. Know that you are infinitely loved and wonderfully created. And I pray that as you go forth today that you have a fresh perspective on how to see God as truly good. Be blessed, my friend.